Welcome to the Hello First Name Podcast. The Hello First Name Podcast revolves around the term personalization and is brought to you by marketing author Rasmus Holin, founder of Omnichannel Institute and chief experience officer at the marketing automation software company Agilic. The podcast is based on the book Hello First Name. Each episode is based in turn on a chapter from the book, followed by a discussion of the very same chapter with an expert marketing practitioner in the following episode. As always, you can buy the book on Amazon or other bookstores. You can also choose to listen to it all for free on your favorite podcast service. You're also very welcome to download the abstract of the book for free, and all models, of course, are able to download. All downloads are sponsored by Agilic. I'll make sure to put a link to everything in the show notes. But you can always connect on LinkedIn, and I'll be happy to reply and help out. Chapter 14. Tying it all up in the bow tie of personalization. In previous chapters, we've covered all four corners of the bow tie of personalization and explored how you can benefit from working with personalization in the three major marketing disciplines through campaigns, through marketing automation, and on inbound platforms. You should now have a deep understanding of what personalization is and how the insights and the content ends of the bow tie of personalization can be tied together in a beautiful personalized knot. Your segments are the insights that matter the most when you're working with campaigns. Moments of truth matter the most when you're working with marketing automation. The content that matters the most when you're working with outbound communication is your messages. And if you're working with personalization on inbound platforms, you should be most concerned with personalizing your content feeds. Combining all four corners of the bow tie simultaneously is not easy. However, when you do so, everything is centered around your customers at a specific moment and you can expect a substantial lift in their perception of the customer experience. In this chapter, after revisiting the knot in the bow tie, we'll explore what a realistic, good customer journey looks like when you become a leader within personalization. We will then spend some time diving into how you measure the value that we've been talking so much about. It turns out that how you measure isn't a given, but it has a tremendous impact on how you create value and how you can keep yourself and your team creating positive impact and results. At the end of the chapter, we'll gather the maturity levels for personalization within campaigns, marketing automation, and inbound platforms into the front end of the pyramid of personalization, which we introduce briefly in chapter 6. With the front end of the pyramid of personalization at hand, You'll have a tool to help you make better decisions about the scope of any personalization-related project, including what is normally done in which order. Together with the case studies from chapters 9, 11, and 13, this will help you to set realistic expectations both within your team and among senior management. Getting back to the knot of the bow tie. Back in chapter 6, before we got into the details of the bow tie of personalization, We discussed how the central knot is an analogy for the moment that all your personalization efforts come together at the same time. When you combine insights, such as segments and moments of truth, with corresponding content in the form of creative messages and content feeds, you get as close as possible to hyper-personalization. Doing so creates a truly memorable and differentiating customer experience, one that will win you not only money, but customers' hearts as well. However, The goal is not to always be hyper-personalized for all customers on all channels, as this is simply not feasible and would require you to do tremendous amounts of work in discovering insight, producing content and matching that content to customers according to expected perception of relevance. There will always be prospects and customers about whom you know very little, and thus, in those cases, your chances of being hyper-personalized will be slim to none. 
What does good look like from the customer's point of view? How good can a personalized customer experience actually get? Set aside the golden moments potentially captured in the knot of the bow tie. For now, we're talking about the general customer experience over time. Imagine that you've mastered all the techniques that we've covered so far in this book. What then would an individual customer journey look like? On a granular level, there would really be no tilling up front. As we've discussed, no matter how many data points we have for a specific customer, we still only see a fraction of the full picture. So much is going on in customers' lives about which we don't have any data, and we never really know what's on somebody's mind. So the customer journey belongs to the customer. The customer journey equals your marketing plus everything else in the customer's life. We as marketers can only try to nudge the journey in the direction we believe will benefit us by benefiting the customer. For each personalized touchpoint, we increase our chances of making this happen. But we can never expect our communication to be perceived as 100% relevant all the time. In a specific customer's journey, they will definitely experience a lot of the personalized content you've put together. But because you can't always sit around waiting for customers to come to you, this specific person will also experience some of the more general marketing and communication across all channels. Your marketing contribution to an individual customer journey is thus a mix of highly personalized communication, semi-personalized communication, and generic unpersonalized communication. This will be made up of brand advertising, performance marketing, editorial newsletters, triggered app notifications, and automated emails. Figure 16, if you choose to download it, gives you an example of how a customer might encounter different types of communication along the customer journey. The personalized customer experience, therefore, cannot always be hyper-personalized and remain in the knot of the bow tie all the time, so to speak. And even when personalization is going well, the customer won't necessarily always notice. Their segment may have been excluded from specific communication, or some of the personalization may be implicit and thus designed to be subtle and discreet. The realistic end goal of the personalized customer experience. So, given the knowledge that we've gained so far in this book, let's try to sum up what characterizes a realistic personalized customer journey for an engaged customer in a company that is a leader in personalization. First of all, we have the so-called hygiene factors, things customers expect as standard. The customer can actively log in and remain logged in. When they change channels, they never have to start over and aren't asked to resubmit any information previously given in any other channel. They are in full control of any marketing and data consents and can easily revoke them. The basic user experience of the website and the app is fairly frictionless and the standard functionality is available and intuitive. With regards to marketing communication, the customer sees no advertisements or any other marketing communication for products they recently bought or subscriptions they already have. In general, and as long as they stay engaged with the brand, they primarily receive communication on owned media. Offers and promotions they receive are mostly seen as relevant and are consistent across the various communication channels. They are gently reminded to complete already initiated and or necessary tasks to maximize the value of their customer relationship, either by taking advantage of offers or by using services and products they have already paid for to get maximum value. This means that a large portion of the messages are unrelated to sales. 
the customer does not perceive all inspirational messages and content feeds to be 100% relevant. Some are, but others sit right around the edge of what the customer would normally engage with. When they are not ready to make a purchase, they are not pushed or nudged to do so. They only see content feeds on category pages and in emails that are relevant or at least not irrelevant. And the ranking of the elements therein seems to have put the most interesting elements first. Less engaged customers will experience less personalization. Even if you've built a marketing setup to support the above ideal scenario, it doesn't mean that it will apply to all customers. The amount of historical and recent data for each customer will set the bar for how personalized the customer experience that person can expect to have. It's the same as in real life. If you know nothing about the person sitting next to you, you have to either ask or talk about yourself or wait around for things to happen. But this is hardly a sound business strategy. We believe that a lot of the critique and skepticism around personalization has its roots in this very insight. You will never be hyper-personalized for everybody all the time. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't aspire to deliver a more personalized customer experience than today. There's still a lot of value to bring to customers and your company. Measuring the value of personalization. In describing the primary marketing disciplines that involve personalization, we have already mentioned several potential uplifts. During these discussions, we've somewhat casually thrown various metrics and key performance indicators around. Before moving on to discussing the prerequisites in part three and organizational matters in part four, we'd like to zoom in on how to measure success from personalization. Measuring success from personalization relates to the three maturity levels in the pyramid. Practitioners will tend to focus on different types of metrics based on their maturity level. Beginners will focus on channel-specific engagement metrics such as click rates and reach. Intermediates will focus on conversions and sales. Leaders will focus on customer metrics such as customer lifetime value and net promoter score. CLV is an economic figure representing how much value a single customer will most likely provide to a company as long as the customer relationship remains intact. NPS is closely related to customer satisfaction and is thus an emotional metric. Instead of measuring satisfaction directly, NPS focuses on the customer's willingness to recommend a product or service. So in that sense, NPS goes one level beyond satisfaction into ambassadorship. This evolution of metrics is a reflection of the common marketing evolution from engagement to sales to customer centricity. Identifying your metrics. You have probably tried testing and measuring the effects of different subject lines in emails. This is basically a type of conversion rate optimization, CRO. It is about trying to find the one generic subject line that outperforms the rest. You have probably also compared your conversion rates for automated emails with your conversion rates for campaign emails and counted the total sales generated by a personalized campaign. But what is the right way to measure the success of personalization efforts? First of all, it isn't wrong to do any of the above. Most of the time, better engagement metrics such as clicks and opens do eventually have an effect on conversion rates and ultimately customer lifetime value, CLV. It is also interesting to look at the total sales for a personalized campaign compared to the equivalent from last year. But a myopic focus on click rates can juke the stats and create worthless sub-optimization. Moreover, so many things change contextually from year to year in terms of what stimulates sales and customer engagement that it's often quite difficult to compare campaign results like for like. 
More importantly, however, none of these measurement tactics answer the question of whether the personalization was worth it. You need to ask yourself what the generic alternative to the personalized version of your efforts is. Sometimes it's just a generic piece of content. Sometimes it's doing nothing at all. Once you've identified what is appropriate, you can move on to testing using a control group. Using control groups. To compare your personalization efforts with their generic alternatives, you need to define a control group. A control group is normally a small portion, for instance, 5 to 10% of your customer database that you choose to expose to the generic alternative. In this book, we'll call the other group the dialogue group. In the case of launching a marketing automation flow, the control group might not be exposed to the flow at all. That way, you can test the effect of the whole flow, including all personalized aspects. After an appropriate time period has passed, you can compare the results for the two groups. If you've done well, you should see a difference in the share of customers who performed the action you wanted them to do, hopefully in favor of the dialogue group. However, in order not to draw any false conclusions, you need what is called statistical significance before you can conclude which group is the winner. To put it simply, this means that enough people must have been exposed to your personalization experiment to ensure that the numbers are steady and wouldn't change much if more people were included. For a short campaign, the size of the control group will determine whether you'll get statistical significance or not. For marketing automation flow, both the size of the control group and the amount of time it has been running will be the determinants. It's essential to get statistical significance and it's good to get it quickly. In that way, you can try out more things and learn more quickly. Calculating the appropriate size of control group can be difficult though, so recommend you use one of the many online tools for doing this. In the following example, we've used Optimizely's sample size calculator. As an example, let's say you have a simple automated email welcome flow for trial subscribers with the aim of converting them to your full paid subscription. If the original conversion rate is 30% and you are aiming to lift this by at least 20% to a new conversion rate of 36%, then you need to let the flow run until you've had 580 control group members through the new flow, plus at least the same number of test group members. So if you have 1160 new trial members daily, the experiment would be over as soon as these people had been through your welcome flow. If the uplift turns out to be smaller than the 20%, you'd need to let the experiment run longer before you can draw a conclusion with 95% certainty, which is normally an accepted rate for calculating control group sample sizes. Using control groups comes with a caveat, though. The people in the control group won't get the better, more personalized experience. In that sense, it actually costs you money to deploy a control group. For this reason, Control groups shouldn't necessarily be permanent or static. For example, let's say you've done your control group work on your welcome email flow, and you've proven there is a 20% difference in terms of sales between the control group and the dialogue group. You could then either make the control group smaller and keep it like that to have fresh numbers, or consider not having it anymore. Keep the report on the results of your experiment in a drawer though. Most likely, someday a finance manager will come and try to kill your personalized flows and take your headcount and software to help cut costs. And even if no one asks, you're still better off knowing how much you're saving or earning by using personalization. Using proxy metrics. As you become more advanced with your personalization, for instance, as you move up the maturity levels, metrics become more customer-centric. However, it can be tricky to take these measurements. 
For example, in the case of CLV, when is the customer relationship over? When can you expect a customer to not spend anymore? When has a retail customer churned? We shall once again turn to the work of Gibson Biddle, former VP of product at Netflix. He suggests that when it would take a long time to get the real metrics and make decisions on the back of them, you should use so-called proxy metrics. When Netflix wanted to measure the effect of a new content recommendation algorithm, it could have used churn statistics. However, instead the company measured how many customers with the old algorithm spent 40 or more hours per month watching shows on Netflix versus the number of customers with the new algorithm. The number 40 wasn't picked randomly, of course. It was determined through a churn analysis showing that customers using the service above this limit had a substantially lower chance of terminating their subscription. This served as a good proxy metric for churn risk, but it was easier and quicker to collect and calculate. Do the math all the way to the money. Once you've achieved your statistically significant results on whether the personalized or the generic experience is most effective, you'll face a further challenge, presenting your results in a way that will earn you trust and potentially extra resources from senior management. For this to play out the way you want it to, we suggest that you don't present engagement metrics or even conversion rates, as these can be hard for senior managers to relate to. Instead, we suggest that you do the math and calculate how many people the improved conversion rate applied to, how much they spent, and what the margin was on the goods they bought. In other words, do the math until you can count the money the difference makes. And money is language that all senior executives understand. Doing this math on expected potential outcome before an experiment or project is implemented can even help you determine how much you can invest without the risk of overinvesting. For example, you can estimate if there is sufficient economic potential to fund an extra headcount or even to hire an agency to help out. Remember, though, that such a calculation of a potential personalized future should be taken with a grain of salt. It's not fortune-telling, but nor is it an exact science. See it as a decision support. When calculating the true monetary uplift, remember that for marketing automation flows and personalization of content feeds on inbound platforms, the reasonable period for measuring return on investment, ROI, is quite long when compared to campaigns. This is due to the automated nature of the process and the relatively small need to update content and flows once they're up and running. Eventually, these projects will have a much higher ROI than most manual campaigns when the one-time effort they require is taken into consideration over time. Maturity levels for a personalized customer experience. The pyramid of personalization. Throughout part two of the book, we have deconstructed personalization into the constituent insights and content elements of the bow tie of personalization. We have also described how you can use the bow tie to look more clearly at value creation from personalization within the three major marketing disciplines, campaigns, marketing automation, and inbound platforms. We have conceptualized three levels of maturity for each of these disciplines. The three levels all contain scopes, in other words, types of communication you build when working with personalization. As you may already have noticed, the closer you get to the top level of maturity, the more centralized and channel agnostic the scope becomes. This is why we use the term pyramid, because the disciplines come together at the peak. The model begins to resemble a pyramid. All three disciplines gradually move towards centralized management of content, AI-based insights, and matching of these insights with content. We also see a movement 
towards catering more to a good customer experience as opposed to pushing short-term sales and thus creating and preserving long-term value. In the end, the result is true personalized omnichannel marketing. What we've covered in part two constitutes the front end of the pyramid. This is where effectiveness is born. Becoming efficient is another matter. How do you build a team and an organization that can work efficiently with personalization? This is what we will explore in part four of the book where we describe the back end of the pyramid. The three levels of maturity will give you a chance to evaluate your own company's maturity and how far you come. Download figure seven and see how it provides a simplified overview of the maturity levels for all three disciplines. Download the models at omnichannelinstitute.com resources. We realize that the cases where companies have organized themselves to support omnichannel personalization across the customer journey and truly match insights with content for all customers are few and far between. When this happens, however, it opens up the possibility of creating truly memorable personalized experiences across channels. Mixing the somewhat technical part of personalization with a bit of creativity and warmth truly holds the potential for putting the person back in personalization, as our fellow personalization author David Mannheim argues in his new book. Achieving this kind of maturity within personalization both allows for and requires a whole other way of working. It needs a new operating model, as we shall discuss later when we look at the back end of the pyramid in part four. But first, we need to deliver on our promise to explore the possibility that personalization might not be the answer or the right tactic. Is personalization a good tactic for any digital project, any business challenge, any business sector? In the next part of the book, we shall explore these very questions. Thank you for listening in on this episode of Hello First Name. Remember that all models and even a written abstract of the book are available for download. You'll find the link in the show notes. In our next episode, which is a more classical podcast style, we'll be discussing the chapter you just listened to, namely tying it all up in the bow tie of personalization with Howard Hofdahl, VP of Loyalty at the Nordic Hotel Chain Strawberry, formerly known as Nordic Choice Hotels.